listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Well, good morning, everyone. It's my privilege to be with you here this morning. I am from Creation Ministries International. I'd like to spend a few moments with you today to just introduce you to the organization and then also to bring, I hope, will be a powerful message from the Word of God today. Now, Creation Ministries International, we are a nonprofit organization, but we're also apologetics ministry, which means we believe in and we teach the inerrant Word of God right from the very first verse. We actually have offices in seven countries around the world, and currently our information is being translated into 40 different languages. Our website is actually very easy to remember. It is creation.com, and today there are more than 11,000 different articles and um, video clips that are on the website, and I very much encourage you to check it out. All you have to do is just go to the search engine, Put in dinosaurs or starlight or whatever you want, and you'll get yourself a whole bunch of excellent information. Now, CMI is also what we call an information ministry, which means we want to get this faith-building information into our churches and into our homes to help believers in their faith. And one of the ways we do this is something called creation infobites. What's infobites? Well, about every two weeks or so, through your email, you'll get a little link and you'll click on, and there will be some articles there that are either recent or we will address something that's happened in the world that's happened recently. Now, this is a wonderful free tool. If I could ask the ushers to immediately come forward and just pass out all the clipboards, all you have to do to sign up for Infobytes is just put your name in there and then your email address, and if you'd be so kind to put your postal code. Now, you're saying, well, what should my postal code have to do with it? Because it's not connected to my email. Well, this is the way that we connect with people, is through the postal code to track them to see where they're coming from. We have more than 255,000 people on Infobytes in 100 different countries around the world, and that's the way that we can connect. So Infobytes is a very non-threatening, free way to get connected with CMI. If you want to um, unsubscribe at any time, you can just do that as well. Most people, when they get connected with it, they say, hey, this is a wonderful tool so that I can be informed on a regular basis. So as those go back, just uh, let the ushers help. Just all those clipboards get out at the same time, and if you'd like to sign up for that, that would be terrific. Usually this is the time where I introduce myself and my family. This is the Jansen clan. We actually live in Yarrow, BC. How many people know where Yarrow is? All right, so just outside of Chilliwack there, that's where we live. We are from the Lower Mainland, and my wife's family is actually from the Kelowna area here. My wife grew up in Penticton, so this is sort of like a second home for us. We love to come to the Kelowna area because I get to stay with my mother-in-law, and she spoils us, and it's a wonderful time there. You can see that we have five grown children. This picture is actually a little bit old because since this picture was taken... We now have two grandchildren. So those of you who are grandparents, we, just, we get it now. It's wonderful to have those little ones. And so our oldest son, Joel, and his wife, Sherry, they have a little boy. And our daughter, Jocelyn and Tim, they have a little baby girl. And so what a wonderful thing it is to see the church grow and that we can share this together with our family. Now, by trade, I am a journeyman electrician in telecommunications. And I did that for 11 years. 
And you may have heard of the company that I worked for. I worked for BC Tel at that time. Now it's TELUS. And I worked in their engineering department and system designs and all those wonderful things. And then for the next 25 years, I was a high school teacher. I taught math and science and biology and chemistry. I have since retired from my teaching position, and now I am actually back in university and taking some more education and working on my master's degree in apologetics. So this is our life right now, and it's very busy, and it's a wonderful opportunity to connect with CMI because I think this is a very important life-changing ministry. Well, because I was a teacher, I'm going to ask a question. It's a little bit hard to see all of you. Who can tell me what is the name of our website? Creation.com. How many articles are on the website? Thousands. Thousands. Be a little more specific. Multiple choice. More than 11,000. That's correct. What a, what a wonderful tool has been created. This is actually the largest data bank in the world on the creation evolution issue. I think those clipboards are doing pretty good. When you're done, we'll just bring them to the back and my wife will uh, switch them around. Let's get started so that we can get right into the message this morning. And hopefully there will be something that we can all take away. My talk this morning actually comes from Ephesians 4 verse 12, equipping the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. That's exactly what we want to do this morning. I want to encourage you in your faith. I hope we'll be able to answer some of the questions that you have about the creation evolution issue. And then you'll be able to share this information when you share your faith with other people. I want to give you some solid biblical theology, and I also want to give you some excellent scientific evidence. All right. Let's imagine for a minute that you're lying on the floor, and you're slightly unconscious, and everything's gone dark, and you roll over and you see this. Well, that's not very good. And it all comes back to you, right? That's not very good either. So you call this fellow up, and you say, can you help me? And he comes over and he spends a few minutes and he looks at your situation and then he says, nah, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And you're thinking, well, why not? And then you notice he's got this bright red toolbox. You say, hey, my friend, use your toolbox. He says, well, that's the problem. You see, I have no tools and I don't know what to do. And you're thinking at that moment, well, that's great. How can you fix my electrical problems with no tools? It's a good question. Let's take this simple toolbox analogy now to another level. What happens if you're at work one day and a colleague says to you, hey, you're a Christian. If there is a loving God, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? Maybe you're a homeschool mom. We were at the homeschool convention yesterday. Your son asked you this pretty good question. Mom, where did dinosaurs fit in the Bible? I'm going to be giving a talk tonight at Providence Church at 7.15 or so on this exact topic. Where do dinosaurs fit in the Bible? Or maybe you work with young people or a teacher like I was, and they ask you this fairly difficult question, how can we see distant stars if the universe is young? Well, these are very important questions. They're going to need some really solid answers. So what do you do? Well, you're going to go to your creation knowledge toolbox for the answers. Back in the early 1990s, that's exactly what my situation was. My colleagues and my students were asking some very important questions. Unfortunately, my toolbox was also really quite empty. I didn't have a lot of really good answers. And I had to ask myself the following. How am I going to answer all these questions? Because folks, here it is. You can't teach what you don't know. Think about that. I wanted to be able to answer these questions, but I needed to do something very important first. I needed to build a solid theological foundation. 
And that foundation actually starts in the book of Genesis because Genesis sets the scene for the big picture of the Bible. And we all know this. The creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But there's much more than this. Because many doctrines of Christianity are actually established in the book of Genesis. Let's have a look at a few of them. The doctrine of God, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That man is made in God's image, not that of a primate. The doctrine of original sin. We're going to look at that one in a few minutes. The doctrine of salvation is in the book of Genesis. And one that's being very much contested by our culture and society today is the doctrine of a holy marriage. So you see the book of Genesis is actually very critical because these doctrines are at the very foundation of our Christianity. You may be familiar with this building. It's in Shanghai, China, and it's very famous, but for all the wrong reasons. Why? Well, one day it just fell over. Why is that? Because it had no foundation. Now, I'm not a structural engineer, but I can tell you just having a couple of concrete tubes stuck in the dirt is not a solid foundation for such a large building, is it? And so it is with our faith. Folks, do we believe in the absolute authority of the Word of God to build that solid foundation? And do we fully understand the message of the gospel? Remember that 2 Timothy says that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Well, since the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then this has to apply then to the book of Genesis, where it clearly states there was a literal six-day creation and there was a global flood. Because God is the God of truth and he cannot lie, I want to ask you this very important question this morning. Folks, do you want other people teaching your children and your grandchildren things that are not true? Or maybe a more important question this morning is this. Are you equipped this morning to be able to discern and then refute false teaching? Or maybe this morning you're just saying, oh, come on, Clarence, get over it. Is an uncompromising biblical foundation really so important? Isn't just knowing and loving God enough? And does believing in evolution in millions of years really change the gospel message? We're going to have a look at that this morning. About 10 years ago, the Barner Research Group, they found out that on average, 70% of our young people are leaving the church within four years after graduating from high school. I want to ask you this question. Do you want your children and your grandchildren to be one of the seven or one of the three? I think we also need to ask the question, why are they and many people today leaving the church? I think there's at least four reasons that we can acknowledge this morning. The first one is that the church and Christianity are under severe attack. All we have to do is just watch the nightly news of what's going on in the world today against the church. The authority of Scripture is being rejected, and the influence of the church on society today is waning. The overall moral and cultural decay of our society. My goodness, look at the amount of sin that is so easily available on TV and on the internet to the youngest of children with no supervision and no filtration. The moral uh, decline of our society today. 
And the rise of atheism, that is, there is no God, and the outright rejection then of God as the creator. You see, there's a tremendous spiritual battle that's going on here, and there's a disconnect that's happening because many of our youth are leaving the church because of these reasons. Well, what then is the end result of atheism? Well, here it is. If there is no God, then there is no accountability, and we decide what is right and wrong. What does this look like then when we compare creation versus evolution? Well, creation is based on the Word of God. This is God's truth in the Bible. Evolution, however, is based on the Word of man. This is man's truth that he has made up. I believe there are many people who are at a theological crossroads in their faith today. Who are you going to trust? Are you putting your trust in the word of God or are you putting your trust in the word of man? Folks, if we don't get this very first foundational principle straight, then all the rest of our theological foundations are going to do what? They're going to crumble away until we have no foundation. So let's take about 20 minutes or so and let's look at some of the critical foundations of Christianity. We're going to compare what does the word of man say, what does the word of God say, and then see if we can come up with some conclusions. All right, let's start at the beginning. Origin of the cosmos. Well, from a secular or atheistic worldview, they say that we started out with nothing. Now, I didn't know how to draw nothing, so that little dot up there is going to represent nothing. And then about 15 billion years ago, there was this cosmic Big Bang. And then over billions of years, this nothing eventually turned into everything. And in this atheistic account, the stars evolved billions of years before the earth actually came into being. All right, what does the biblical account of the origin of the cosmos say? Well, we all know Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the biblical account, the earth was created before the stars, and they are only three days apart in age. Let's just stop here for a minute. We need to fully understand what's going on. You see, one of these accounts says billions of years, and the other one says three days, and the order is completely reversed, so one of these accounts must be wrong. Folks, is it even possible to believe that the scripture is so far off on the timing and can't even get the order straight? Because if this is the situation, how can we trust the book of Genesis? If we can't trust the book of Genesis, then it begs an even more important question. If Genesis is wrong, then what else in scripture is wrong? Let's have a look at the origin of human beings. It's kind of important. It involves you and I. Where'd we come from? Well, from an evolutionary or naturalistic timeline, they say that this is the beginning of time. That's the Big Bang, and here's the present today. And on this timeline, man appears somewhere about here. Now, if billions of years are true, then man appears near the end of the timeline. All right, what does the Bible say? These are the words of Jesus found in Mark chapter 10, verse 6. Jesus said, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. From one man, he made every nation of mankind. So how do these two verses then compare to what we're going to call a biblical creation timeline? 
Again, in the beginning, time zero, and here's the present. Now, on this timeline, where does man appear? Does he appear near the end here? No, Scripture says very clearly, it says right here, that man was created on day six of the creation. And if we add up all those carefully recorded genealogies in Genesis chapter 5, even with some gaps between some of the people between King David and Adam, they're still going to add up at very best with wiggle room to only thousands of years, but certainly not millions and billions of years. And you'll notice that this timeline then is in complete agreement with the words of Jesus found in Mark chapter 10. All right, let's have a look at the origin of plants and animals. Now, evolutionists say that these perfectly formed atoms somehow came together. Now, I taught chemistry for 25 years. I have no idea on how energy or nothing can form these incredibly complex things called atoms. And then somehow, miraculously, 80 billion random atoms miraculously went from being completely disorganized to being organized. And they had to have meaningful information in them. They also had to have a time of jumping. And they jumped from being non-living to living. And they also had to have self-repairing and self-replicating capabilities already pre-built in before they jumped to life. And somehow, through all of these miracles, 80 billion random atoms formed one bacteria. And then through millions and billions of years of mutations, this bacteria then formed into every living plant and animal that's on earth. And this is what's being taught today in our school system as a fact. I want to take just a minute and I just want to refute this entire chart, and in fact, the whole theory of evolution. This whole idea is genetically impossible because of the following. In order to mutate from a microbe to a man, and if someone ever says to you evolution is an ape-like creature to a man, that's not true. It's you have to go from a microbe to a man. In order to do that, you need to do something. You need to gain meaningful genetic information. What does this look like? Well, I've said that the genetic information is represented by this encyclopedia, but it's a little bit too big. A microbe only has about 100 pages of genetic information. How much does it take to make a human being? You need a thousand encyclopedias worth of genetic information. This whole thing is impossible. Why? Because mutations result in a loss of meaningful genetic information, not a gain. You can't be gaining genetic information when you're constantly losing it. This simple chart actually completely refutes the whole idea of evolution from a microbe up to a man. All right, what does the Bible say? Genesis chapter 1, 25. God made the beasts of the earth after their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. All right, what's the key word or words that's talking about creatures here? It's called what? 
kinds. Excellent. What does this look like? Well, this is what we call the creation orchard. These are God's created kinds. So we got the dog kind, the monkey kind, the bird kind, and so on. And it was from each one of these common kinds through genetic variation, not evolution, genetic variation, that we have all the different types of animals that we see today. And these original creatures were very genetically rich. In fact, you'll notice there's no jumping between kinds. You'll never see dogs becoming pigs. Why not? Because they don't have the genetic information to become a pig. In fact, the original dog kind was something like our modern-day wolf population. And then through genetic variation and selective breeding on man's part, we get everything from the Chihuahua all the way up to the Great Dane. I want you to notice two things. Rich in genetic diversity, less genetic diversity, but they're all still what? Dogs, because that's all the genetic information that they have. They can only be dogs. And this is a much more believable, actual scientific explanation. Let's move over now to the origin of sin and death. This is one of the critical foundations that's missed by some folks who say, well, what difference does it make if the world is millions of years old? It doesn't affect the Bible. Let me ask you this question. When did sin enter in the world? When did sin enter in the world? Well, Romans 5 clearly says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. Well, why then did death enter into the world? Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. You see, scripture is very clear here that death only came into the world when sin came in the world and they entered in through Adam because his name is mentioned specifically in Romans 5 verse 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. And it wasn't through generations of sinful people. It entered in through one man. Now, atheists, they know on how critical the doctrine of original sin is to the book of Genesis. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Genesis is one of the most attacked books in the Bible. Why is that? Because if the doctrines that are taught in the book of Genesis can be minimized, the message of the gospel is actually compromised. I'm going to show you how that works. Now, scientists have found animals that have become fossils, and some of these guys died of terrible diseases and violent deaths. They've also found human fossilized remains, and they say that these things are hundreds of thousands of years old by using these conventional dating methods. Now, what we really want to understand is this. We see death and suffering found in the fossil record. And of course, it's taught today in our school systems that the fossil record is literally millions of years old. So, given the biblical account of creation in Genesis then, where does the fossil record and death and suffering and millions of years actually fit into the biblical account? Well, some folks, they want to do this. They want to take that death and suffering and they want to actually put it before day one of the creation. This is called the gap theory. And they believe this is when Satan and about one-third of his angels, they rebelled against God and God had to do what? He dismissed them out of heaven. However, this means that there had to be two separate creations because you got death and suffering then before original sin. And it also clearly 
The Bible does not support this, and it absolutely violates that it is the wages of sin that is death, the scene in the fossil record, from Romans chapter 6. Well, where else could death and suffering fit in? Other folks want to do this. They want to put it either between day one and day two of the creation, or maybe between verse one and verse two of Genesis chapter one. But that's not what the scripture says, and we all know this. After the first day of creation, God said that it was what? It was good. Well, maybe we can put it somewhere between days two to six. After each of these days, God said that was what? Good. In fact, twice on day three. Well, maybe we could put it after day six. No, after day six, God said that the whole creation was what? Very good. How can death, disease, and suffering be very good? It can't. So it's only after the fall of man that death, disease, and suffering fits in. I very graciously would like to ask you this morning, folks, where does millions and billions of years fit into the biblical account? Nowhere. It simply doesn't go there. Now, what would the Garden of Eden look like if there actually was death and disease and suffering before original sin? Well, the Garden of Eden would be sitting on a, punch, a, a big pile of dead things. And so we see in the fossil record, death, suffering, and diseases like cancer and osteoporosis. Folks, if that is very good, I don't want to see what is very bad. I love this slide. This is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Oh, Adam, what a perfect world filled with thorns and thistles in the fossil record. But that's not what the Bible says, does it? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Cursed is the ground because of sin, and now it shall grow for you both thorns and thistles and all the rest of these things. Now, death, suffering, diseases, thorns and thistles before original sin clearly violates the scripture, but here's the most important point. You simply cannot have evolution without that death, suffering, and millions of years, period. So I want to challenge you this morning. I want you to consider, if you want your children and your grandchildren to be taught evolution and millions of years, they're going to have to accept that it was death and suffering that led to man. And this is very important because this is what a group of people today called theistic evolutionists try to do. These folks believe that there's a God, but he used the mechanisms of death, disease, and suffering over millions of years to bring about man. But you simply cannot have that because you don't have then a historical Adam or original sin. And you can't bring these two theologies together because they're actually in opposition to one another. However, if you want to teach your children and your grandchildren that creation and original sin as recorded in the scripture, then you can teach your children as a fact that it was man's sin that led to death. And do you see how those two things are reversed? Very important. In fact, if there was no historical Adam or original sin, then why did Christ have to die? This is the summation of the, one of the prominent atheists and champion of evolutionary teaching today. This is Dr. Richard Dawkins. He makes a profound statement. He says the original sin is supposed to be committed by Adam, who as we now know, 
never existed. So now we have the preposterous idea that Jesus was sacrificed. The scapegoat was sacrificed for the sin of a non-existent forebearer. Folks, is it possible that our young people today have believed this horrible atheistic teaching and that Christ's atonement is just a preposterous idea? It never happened. It's not worth believing. And that's why they've walked away from the church. Here's a visual summary of what we've talked about so far. I want you to look very carefully at the diagram here. And I want you to see on how the three corners of the diagram are completely dependent on each other. And here's a little aside. Folks, this is my takeaway from my presentation. If you get nothing else of what I share this morning, I want you to see on how absolutely critical this is to salvation. Folks, if we change a literal six-day creation up there with evolution and any form of millions of years, this is exactly theologically what's going to happen. There's no historical Adam which means then that sin did not enter into the world through one man, which of course makes the Apostle Paul a liar, because there was then no original sin. Now here it is. If this is the situation, then this means that Jesus Christ cannot be our kinsman redeemer. What does it mean to be the kinsman redeemer? This is a Jewish term, goel. It means that you have to be connected through the bloodline to the person who committed the original sin. If there was no original Adam and no original sin, then Jesus Christ cannot be our kinsman redeemer. Folks, if he is not the kinsman redeemer, then that means there is no atonement for our sin. If there's no atonement for our sin, folks, there is no gospel message. And we are most to be what? Pitied. Why? Because we have no hope. That is incredible bad news, isn't it? I want to share with you some very good news this morning, and it's this. Folks, there was and has to be a literal six-day creation. There has to be that because there has to be a historical Adam. Sin did enter in the world through one man. There was original sin, which means that Jesus Christ can be what? Our kinsman, redeemer. If that's the situation, then there is atonement for our sin then that means there is a gospel message that we need to share today with a culture and a society that so desperately needs to hear the message of Christ. Amen? Amen. We need to do that. Do you see that evolution of any sort and millions of years actually compromises the message of the gospel to the point where there is no gospel message? Folks, if the message of the gospel is gone then all the rest of the doctrines of Christianity and the Bible are just going to crumble away until we have nothing else to believe in. We'll have no hope. I want to switch gears for just a few moments now. Let's discuss two very important evolutionary and scientific terms. The first one's called uniformitarianism. It's kind of a big word, and it means this. The present is the key to the past. So in other words, the way that we see processes and mechanisms happening today, it always happened the same way in the past. Here's a little simple example. This is downtown Yarrow. Look at that, eh? This is where my wife and I live. Wow, there you go. 
We have two sets of stop signs, one at each end, and that's it. And you know what? If you're to come to Yarrow any time between about October, May, this is literally on how busy it is in downtown Yarrow. I took this picture at 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, and you're all thinking, wow, nothing's going on there, folks. But if you're to come to Yarrow in the summertime, woo-wee, it's busy. That's an exaggeration. I didn't know how to take a picture of three and a half kilometers of traffic trying to get through one stop sign. What is everybody in the summer doing in Yarrow? Well, if you know about it because you raised your hand, you got to go through Yarrow to get to the Cultus Lake water slides, biggest water slides in Western Canada. Or you can go to the lake or to the lovely 18-hole golf course. So by looking at the rate of traffic in downtown Yarrow, you can't tell whether Yarrow is super sleepy and we are so boring, or is it crazy busy? Why is that? Because it's constantly changing throughout the year. So it is with things like geological formations. Let's swing down to the Grand Canyon for a few moments into Arizona. Here's the evidence. We have this very deep canyon, and at the bottom, we have the Colorado River. Now, according to uniformitarianism, at today's rate of erosion, it's going to take the Colorado River millions of years to erode away the canyon. So the assumption is that today's rate of erosion is the same as it always has been in the past. But something very important happened in 1980 in Washington State. And there's enough people here old enough to remember. What happened in 1980 in Washington? Something blew up. Mount St. Helens, it blew up. And it spewed out millions of tons of hot rock and ash and lava that buried 65 square kilometers around the mountain. Then over the next months of these other eruptions of what they call pyroclastic flow, it built up this solid rock layer all around. Then on March 19, 1982, there was this huge mud flow that came from the lake that was formed from the original eruption. It breached the dam and all this stuff came crushing down the valley and it wiped out a whole section and it carved out a 100-foot canyon out of the rock and it's what's known today as the Little Grand Canyon of Washington. It's about 140th the scale size of Arizona, but this whole canyon was carved out of the rock in one day. And today you can see at the bottom of the canyon the little Toodle River. Let's have a close-up now of those three main layers there of all these eruptions. Let's have a look at that middle layer of all those thousands of layers of sedimentation. If someone wasn't there, they would think, well, that takes millions of years for that stuff to form. It didn't. It was deposited in only three hours, not millions of years, and the canyon was carved out in only one day. Now, it's also the same with the rate of erosion. If someone wasn't there to actually record the event, you'd think it's going to take the Toodle River. I love that name. Okay, just work with me. Here's the Toodle River. Doodle, doodle. It's going to take the Toodle River a million years to carve out that canyon, but it didn't. How long did it take? Only one day. Now, here's the most important part. It wasn't the river that formed the canyon. It was the canyon that formed the river. So today when it rains, the water comes down the sides of the rock wall. That's what forms the Toodle River. See any similarities? Is it possible that maybe the Grand Canyon was not formed by uniformitarian mechanisms 
of slow erosion of the Colorado River? Is it possible that maybe in a catastrophic worldwide flood as recorded in Genesis chapter 6, where millions of creatures are trapped in these layers of sediment, they then fossilize, and then when the global flood runoff comes, it wipes out huge areas of the Grand Canyon, and now all we see today as evidence is simply the Colorado River flowing at the bottom of the canyon. Let's now put together science and religion. Now, science is based on experiments, observation, and has to be repeatable in a lab. And this is what we call today operational science. It's very different, however, than history. That is simply events, <coughs> excuse me, that happened in the past. All right, let's bring in religion. It's an organized system of belief based on faith. Let's put them all together now. Let's put evolution to the test. Is evolution actually operational science? Operational science is practiced in the present, but that supposed bacteria to man evolution occurred millions of years in the past. Operational science is repeatable and has to be repeatable in a lab. Now, I do not mean to be offensive to anybody today, but has anybody recently seen ape-like creatures turning into human-like creatures, and most importantly, can that process be repeated in a lab? It can't. It is absolutely non-repeatable. And of course, operational science is observable. Somebody has to sit down and record it. Evolution, however, is simply not observable. You can't watch evolution happening over millions and billions of years. So the only plausible conclusion from this very simple test is this. Evolution is not operational science. It's not observable and cannot be tested and repeated through experimentation. You see, many people are teaching people today that say this. Evolution is science and creation is religion. In fact, this is Dr. Michael Roos. He is very much an outspoken anti-creationist but he made a very important statement a few years ago. He said this, evolution is a religion. You see, he understands that both creation and evolution are based on our faith and what happened in the past. They are interpretations based on presuppositions, which is known as our worldview. Folks, evolution is not science. It's faith. That's very important. This, in a nutshell, is what's happened about the past 200 years. You see, the Word of God used to be authoritative, but through the rise of the teaching of evolution and the rise of atheism as a consequence, this is what's happened in our society today. These things have actually reversed. But the Word of man is now going to have an impossible time explaining things like virgin birth, walking on the water. How about raising the dead? Any miracles in Scripture are impossible to explain from the Word of man. They are miracles. I want to ask you this very important question. Who are you putting your trust in? Are you putting your trust in the Word of God, or have you let it slip, and are you now trusting in the Word of man? Remember that Timothy says, guard what's been entrusted to you. Avoid that worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. The great 19th century preacher Spurgeon, this is what he says about putting your trust in the word of man. 
He said, forsake it that you and I are to take our Bibles and shift and mold our belief to the ever-shifting teachings of so-called scientific men. What folly is this? What's Spurgeon actually saying? He's saying, folks, you can't put your trust in science. Why? Because it's constantly changing. What is science today is going to be fallacy in 10 years from now. About 50 years after Spurgeon passed away, there was another Charles. His name is Charles Templeton. His story, unfortunately, it ends in devastating results because this Charles, he compromised the word of God with evolutionary teachings. Let's just wind back and see what happened to him. Well, the young Templeton, he rose to prominence with another dynamic young speaker that you may recognize. That is Dr. Billy Graham, who passed away a little over a year ago. And these two men, they preached in many crusades all over the United States. What you might not know, however, is that Charles Templeton actually founded Youth for Christ, which is still in existence today. And of course, Billy Graham was their very first evangelist. But these two men, they ended up on completely different pathways. What happened? Charles Templeton attempt, uh, attended Princeton Theological Seminary, where they had added millions of years and evolution into their Old Testament courses as being a fact. And it was through this teaching that started Templeton on what I'm going to call his slippery slide. And it led toward hopelessness and then eventual atheism. Before Templeton died, he wrote this book, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Folks, this man crusaded with Billy Graham. Thousands of people gave their life to Christ through this teaching. And then he became what? An atheist. This is his conclusion. He said, I believe there is no supreme being with human attributes. No God in the biblical sense. That all of life is the result of timeless evolutionary forces over millions of years. I believe that in common with all living creatures, we die and cease to exist as an entity. Folks, Charles Templeton, he died a self-proclaimed atheist. But I think that maybe the moment he died, he wasn't an atheist anymore. May the sovereign God help us to not even start down the slope that leads towards atheism. And more importantly, may we pray that God will protect our children, our very vulnerable young people today, and of course those generations not yet born. I trust that you see that building that solid, biblical, doctrinal foundation is absolutely critical. Let's spend the last few moments this morning then looking at some evidences for creation. Let's put some of those allegorical tools in your toolbox. I want to help you to be equipped so that you can say, yes, I can trust in the word of God. Let's have a look at polystrate fossils. Here's two examples. The one on the right-hand side is from the Cumberland Basin in Nova Scotia. So what do we have here? We have a fossilized tree trunk sitting in thousands of layers of sedimentary rock. Folks, is it possible for a tree to stand there for millions of years while the sedimentation slowly builds up on it? That's not going to happen, is it? That tree's going to die. And they found hundreds of these polystrate fossils all over the world, and they all have the same characteristic. They're all standing upright, solid, fossilized in layers of sedimentary rock. 
This is not possible unless, of course, you have a global worldwide flood where these things are buried very quickly and we see the sedimentation and the fossilization happens at a very rapid rate. How about some ancient animals that maybe turn out to be not so ancient? Back in 1961, some dinosaur bones were discovered in Alaska and they turned out to be this guy, the hadrosaur dinosaur. But here's the catch. Many of these bones were only what they call partially permineralized. We're talking raw bone, bone that had not yet turned into stone or fossil. And these bones were not found buried really deep, frozen in the ground. They were actually found near the surface. Well, this is a very large problem because first of all, dinosaur bones, they don't come with a wonderful little red tag that tells you how old they are. And unprotected, unfossilized bones are certainly not going to last for millions of years. According to the evolutionary timetable, these particular animals died out 80 million years ago. That's not possible if their bones are still around and they're still raw. Maybe thinking, well, that's incredible. How about Dr. Mary Schweitzer's discovery? She's a paleontologist at North Carolina State University. Back in 2005, she released to the world that she had done something a little different. She cut into this giant femur of a T-Rex. Now, what would cause anybody to cut into a big bone out of this dinosaur that she found in Montana? Well, she picked up this bone and she said, this thing stinks. Something's weird going on. She cut into the bone, scooped out the stuff, put it on a slide, treated it, stuck it underneath a microscope, this is what she found. She found branched blood vessels with the red blood cells still intact. She said, this is not possible. She did this experiment 17 times in a row before she finally conceded those are red blood cells from a Tyrannosaurus rex. In an interview a little later, she said, when you think about it, the laws of chemistry and biology and everything else that we know say that it should be gone. It should be degraded completely. Absolutely. In fact, Dr. Schweitzer also found actual stretchy ligaments inside dinosaur bones in Montana. If you go to the creation.com website, you can watch a little video of a person with a set of tweezers, forceps, and they're grabbing a hold of that ligament and they're going, ee, ee, ee. they show the elastic nature that's still found in this tissue from a Tyrannosaurus rex. This evidence is very contradictory to the idea that that tissue is going to last in the ground for 65 million years. Since this initial discovery, more than 40 other samples of blood cells and ligaments and tissues have been found in fossilized bones all over the world. I want to ask you this question. Why is this kind of scientific evidence not being taught today to our children in the school systems? You know why? Is it possible that this is a blow to evolution and millions of years? Folks, these discoveries came out almost 15 years ago and most people have never even seen this before. And the people in the scientific community, they just do not know how to handle this. They actually want to ignore this. Why? Because it doesn't fit into their presuppositions of a uniformitarian worldview that these guys died out 65 million years ago and that the world apparently happens to be 4.65 billion years old. Let's have a look for just a moment at the fossilization process. This is according to our high school textbooks. 
We have a fish and he dies and he goes to the bottom and then very slowly over thousands and millions of years, this fish gets buried and then very slowly he fossilizes. Is this really what happens? Where we live by the Fraser River, when a fish dies, he floats belly up. And all the birds come along and peck their eyeballs out and then everybody else comes along and nibbles on these things and they all fall apart and then they go down to the bottom. How in the world did any fish ever become fossilized and all of these little buddies here at the same time and they're all jumbled up? Well, here's a more believable explanation. Fish is swimming along in the ocean and then during the global flood when all the deep ocean trenches are lifted up, Genesis 7:11, it causes a tremendous amount of turbidity and sedimentation and it comes in and completely captures this little guy and he buries him. But I want you to notice two things. First of all, he's completely intact. He's sealed off and nobody can do what? Can nibble on him. And then over a very short period of time, his bones and his scales become fossilized. Now you may be asking, you know, Clarence, I'm a little bit skeptical of all this this morning. Is there any evidence of this rapid burial and fast fossilization business? I'm setting you up, okay? Here we go. How about a fossilized pickle? How about a fossilized foot still inside the cowboy boot? Folks, it doesn't take millions of years to form a fossil. It simply just takes the right conditions. Here's one of the most famous fish fossils in the world. This is a fish eating another fish. That has got to be a rapid burial and a fast fossilization. How about this? This is an ichthyosaur. He's buried in sediment. Well, actually, she's buried in sediment. And fossilized, why? She's giving birth. That's got to be a rapid burial and a fast fossilization. You see, this evolutionary thinking that it takes millions of years for fossils to form has become so ingrained in people's minds through teachers and textbooks and media and advertising and movies and all these things that what's happened today, the seeds of doubt about a biblical six-day creation and the global flood are deeply implanted into our young people's minds already. And then they don't have an understanding of how this stuff works, so they walk away from the church. Here's the last one. This is what we're going to finish with today. Irreducible complexity. It's my favorite. We use a mousetrap because it's easy to understand. So a mousetrap's got five parts. Platform, spring, hold-down bar, the hammer that does the whacking, if you know what I'm talking about. And, of course, there's the catch. You put your peanut butter or cheese or whatever delicacy you want to put on there. Now, how many parts does it take to make a mousetrap, folks? Five. How many of you need to be there and working together always at the same time? All five. If you miss one of them, the mousetrap doesn't work. Let's take this analogy now to biology. This is the simplest living organism on earth. It's the mycoplasma bacteria. Through genetic testing, we found out that this thing has 475 genes. Oh, what's a gene? Well, let's think about this. A gene is the genetic information, good that provides the coding to make the parts for the bacteria. So a gene kind of represents a part, if you wish. Now, scientists have determined that this bacteria has to have 382 critical genes. If he's missing one of those genes, then the bacteria doesn't exist. So with the mousetrap, it was one out of five. This one is one out of 382. I'm going to show you the most mind-boggling diagram you've ever seen in your life. I can say that because I taught chemistry. Here it is. See that? Folks, 
those are the bits and pieces and chemical processes that that microscopic bacteria has to have in order to turn its food into energy. Let's zoom in a little bit. Look at these incredible processes. Look at these cycles. Look at these molecules. Everything, everything there has to be in order for that bacteria to make any food. And I very graciously would like to ask this. Is it possible that this came about by random evolutionary chances? Folks, that's just simply not possible. Unless every bit and piece and gene and chemical and process is perfect and there and working together at the same time, that bacteria is not going to exist. How much more complex is a human being than a bacteria? Do you see that irreducible complexity is the fatal weakness for evolution, but it makes complete sense? If we believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing creator God who knows that all the bits and pieces have to be there together and working at the same time. Do you also see what's happening in our society today? We are living in an age of full-out promotion and indoctrination of evolutionary thinking, and yet the scientific discoveries are clearly showing that they do not support the evolutionary theory. Let's go back for just a moment to my empty creation knowledge toolbox. You may be wondering, well, whatever happened? About 20 years ago, my wife went to the secondhand store and she bought the secondhand copy of the creation magazine. She brought that magazine home. I read it from cover to cover and I was hooked. I loved it. So my sweet wife went back to the MCC in Habitsford and what'd she do? She bought all the other copies. <laughs> Got home, read them. It was at that time that we decided we need this as a family. Remember the beginning I showed you that we had five children? Well, our children were raised the youngest since three years old on the creation magazine. We needed that magazine because we had a problem. Remember the beginning? How was it going to answer all of those questions for everybody? Folks, those are the exact magazine covers over the years. Do you see what was happening in my life? Every issue of the magazine was answering questions and I was adding tools to my allegorical toolbox so that ultimately I could help and equip other people, especially my own children in my family. And all of this evidence points to an all-powerful, all-knowing creator God. Let's take a few minutes now. We've gone through a lot of material. Let's do just a minute of review and then we'll come to some very important conclusions, all right? First of all, Genesis is real history, folks. It's not poetry. It's not allegory. It's prose, real history. It happened because God said it happened. Why do we believe that it's real history? Because the Bible is our authority, not the word of man. We have to build those solid doctrinal foundations, and we have to have the answers to remove the barriers that are preventing people from coming to Christ. We need to equip the church, both the young and the senior. If you're a senior here today, you have a tremendous opportunity to build into the lives of our young people. If you're a young person today, you have a tremendous opportunity to learn truth and to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a teacher for 25 years, I can say with a little bit of authority that the one thing that young people are looking for today is authenticity. They want to see whether or not we actually believe what and live out what we say we do. And if we don't, folks, and if we do not have the answers for our young people, they are going to not stay in the church. That's very important. Why do we need to equip? Because we need to reverse that trend of our young people 
leaving the church today. So I'm going to ask you now a very, very important question. Are you ready with answers? Could you answer these very difficult questions? Folks, if you don't have the answers for your children or you don't have them yourself for your colleagues, then our children and other people are going to go to other institutions like the secular universities and they would be delighted to do what? Give them an answer, but it's certainly not going to be biblical, is it? I want to just take a few minutes there and if I could, just to help you to become equipped. This, in fact, is the number one equipping tool. You'll probably guess what it is. It is the Creation Magazine. The Creation Magazine is produced four times a year. And it's a very effective thing because it comes into your home on a regular basis. Now, maybe this morning you're thinking, you know what, Clarence? Man, I kind of appreciate what you've been sharing this morning, but I want you to know something. My faith is solid. I love and serve God. I believe in a literal six-day creation. I understand the message of the gospel, and I'm connected in a really good church. And you know what my heart says to that? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we still have Bible teaching churches today. But you know what? If we're really honest with one another, we can probably think of maybe a son, a daughter, a grandchild, friend, maybe someone even from this church who's walked away from the Word of God, and they could actually get back to this foundational information. I want to tell you something. I'm not a salesperson. I was a chemistry teacher. That's, that's my claim to fame. I, I have no sales in me whatsoever. But I do want to introduce you for just a minute to the Creation Magazine. A subscription costs $7.50 a month, and it's just automatically deducted from either your credit card or from a check. It's a very safe way to do it. Now, often when people come from charitable organizations, they compare their charity to what? Cups of coffee. So for one cup of coffee, you can support a child for one day. A cup of coffee a day. I think that's fantastic. Do you know that the Creation Magazine, it costs you one cup of coffee a month? It's actually less than a Tim Hortons medium latte a month. Are your children worth it? Your friends worth it? Are they worth a cup of coffee a month? You can get this faith-building information into your home on a regular basis by subscribing to this magazine because it is very important. 56 pages, family-friendly, no advertising, and subjects on hundreds of different topics, and all of it points to an all-powerful Creator God. If you'd like to get a subscription, of course you get the hard copy, which is the magazine, but we do live in a digital age. So with one subscription, you get up to five digital copies that you can pass around to your family members on the same subscription. And if you'd like to get the magazine today, you don't get this if you sign up on the website, because we want to do this for you today. If you would sign up today, you're going to get an issue of the Creation Magazine. It's the newest one from 2019 and a free Creation DVD of your choice. There's a bunch of them back there you can choose from. Folks, I'm going to tug at your heartstring for just a minute, so I'm going to warn you. This is from the feedback page from the Creation Magazine from a little while back. This is what someone wrote in two years ago. I've been subscribing to Creation Magazine for some years. It's been a constant source of blessing. You'll be pleased to know that one of my grandsons gave his heart to the Lord and was born again after reading about the Grand Canyon. Isn't that an incredible testimony? Folks, is there someone in your family that you think of, you know, we could really use this equipping information? I'm going to ask the ushers if they would just ready themselves now. If you'd like to sign up for the Creation Magazine, the ushers are just going to pass around these little yellow slips of paper. Just grab a piece of paper, tear it off. 
You just got to fill out the information on the front of the, mag- of the paper and on the back with your information there. Sign it. Bring it to my wife in the back where all the resources are. And then you can sign up for that creation magazine. You don't sign up for a long time period. You don't have to. We don't do those long-term subscriptions. You just sign up for however much you want it. And then you say, I don't want it anymore. Just give them a phone call. We did this 20 years ago. We never stopped because our kids just ate this thing every single time. It was a wonderful resource. Now, you're probably wondering, Clarence has been a teacher for 25 years. I wonder if he made his students study. Yep. I told my students, you got to study for the test because it's not going to come to you on that day, which means you have to do what? You have to study and you have to review. And if you don't study and review, well, this is the grand good old forgetting curve. Do you know that within two and a half weeks, you'll have forgotten 80% of everything that I've said this morning? Well, that might be okay, but I really encourage you that if you actually review something, you'll actually remember it longer. So here are some of the excellent resources to help you get equipped from CMI. This is the Creation Answers book, the number one resource book. Be equipped to to give an answer to the 60 most commonly asked questions on creation and evolution. It's written about middle high school level, so you can all understand that. This is Christianity for Skeptics, answers these six theological questions. Folks, chapter two is critical. If there is a God, then why do bad things happen? If you're sharing your faith with someone and you can't answer that question, you've lost your platform of credibility because we need to be able to explain how does a sovereign God allow bad things to happen? Excuse me. If you'd like to get these things together, it's called the faith pack. You buy them together at a reduced price. Get those together. This is the Genesis account. It is the most comprehensive commentary, I believe, ever written on Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Fantastic resource. It is my go-to book. If I want to read about something, I go to this book. If you have young people, there's lots of books there for our youth on dinosaurs, geology, solar system. There is a children's pack back there, five hard-covered books together packaged for $39. You can read this to your children if they're little or grandchildren. It's a great series there. There's great teaching DVDs. I used these DVDs when I was a teacher, and I showed them to my students. There's also a brand new release that just came out, A Question of Origins. It's amazing. It's written at the high school level, and it covers the curriculum that's covered in science from grades 9 through 12. It's an excellent resource, very well written. Or you maybe want to go for the big one, which is the CMI Library Pack. It has all of these great things. The 10 best-selling books and DVDs, you see all that, and they've reduced the price by about 33%. Folks, I want to leave you with a very important exhortation this morning from God's Word. 2 Timothy 4 says, For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. Folks, is this what's happening today to our society? I think that's very sad. Instead, I think we should do this. I think our faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much for letting me share with you this morning. If it is an opportunity for you to come tonight, I'm going to be giving the dinosaur talk at the Providence Church, I think, which is not too far from here, at 7.15. I'm giving this, this first talk this, more, uh, this evening at uh, 6 p.m. So thank you so much. I trust that you see on how important the creation evolution issue is. Thank you so much this morning.